0: We're continuing in our study of 2 Peter in chapter 1, and we're going to begin a series, uh, verses 5 through 11. I can't tell you how long the series is going to go, but it'll go for some weeks. These verses, These verses are absolutely tremendous, and they are rich. And so we want to take our time as we study through these verses. We're not going to actually get into them this morning, Uh, I have some preliminary remarks that are going to take our entire time and indeed part of next week. So this is important, okay? But do, let's read these verses together beginning at verse 5. I want us to be familiar with the passage. We're going to continue to rehearse it. And uh, as I suggested, then uh, for several weeks, we're going to begin to unfold these verses. After his introduction and the things that he has said to us up to this point, he says, For this very reason, the idea being going back to escaping the corruption of the world and participating in the divine nature, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my dear brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who wants to receive a rich welcome? Don't you just love these verses? Don't you love the things he says? We're going to just take our time Uh, through this passage because it is so rich as I have suggested. Now, out of all those verses, I want to call your attention to one verse in particular and to one phrase in that. And that is verse 10. And the phrase I want to call your attention to, you might want to underline it in your Bible and as well you have a space to write it in your notes. Peter says, Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Let me suggest to you It is Peter's intention, it is the Holy Spirit's intention that we be sure of our calling, we be sure of our election. This is critical. This is his intention. This is what he wants us to know and to experience. Now, having said that, I suppose that all of us as Christians have moments somewhere along the line in our Christian experience when we may not be so certain that we're saved. We have times in our life, in our experience, there are times when indeed doubts enter. I've experienced them. There are times when When I'm I'm into myself, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm focused on what I'm not doing. I'm falling short. I'm not reading the Bible as much as I should. I I don't feel like I'm praying as much as I should. I'm not loving my wife like I should. And then the next thoughts that come uh, are, well, you know, maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe you're not really a Christian. How can you call yourself a Christian? Or some kind of sentiment like that. Sometimes those thoughts are fleeting. They just come and go. Sometimes they last a little bit longer. Sometimes they seem to be a way of life. A way of life so that no matter what you do, and there are people, and I've talked to people in our own congregation over the years, who, who they seem, seem to be plunged into some kind of despair, which they find it absolutely impossible to extract themselves from over this issue. There are many people who have publicly confessed Jesus Christ who lack the assurance of God's love in their life. There are many people who have publicly confessed Jesus Christ and they lack the assurance and confidence of eternal life. There are many people who have publicly confessed Jesus Christ who are not certain whether they have been called, whether they have been chosen. They are not certain that they are saved. There are Christians all over the place who wrestle with this, who struggle with this. This is something that is not uncommon. One of the duties of any pastor One of the duties of any pastor is to help people, try to help people understand the truth about their spiritual condition. As I talk with people, my, my purpose, my goal, my understanding of my role in their life and in your life is to help you understand your spiritual condition. Because everything emanates from there. If I don't have a solid understanding, a solid grasp of who and what I am and where I am spiritually, the whole rest of my life is going to be in disarray. Does that make sense to you? See, so it all starts spiritually. That's our job. And again, I have dealt in one way or another over the past 20 plus years with many, many people who find this matter of doubt in their life a very real issue, wondering some, some even if they were to die, even though professing Christ, if really they would go to heaven. Now, each one of us lives with ourselves, don't we? And each one of us knows our own thoughts. We know our own weaknesses. We know those hidden areas that we don't disclose to anybody else. We all have those things, and we all live with those internal concerns, issues, and doubts. Some people really do lack the confidence that God loves them. Now, for you, that may not be an issue. You, you may say, well, I, how can I positive? I know God loves. I, God, The Bible tells us that. But there are some in our midst who really do live with a lack of confidence that God loves them i talk talked to people this way. Some people feel that they, they might not love Christ sufficiently to indicate that they are truly saved. There are some people who think that they just don't believe enough. And you, and you watch them and they're frustrated, frustrated. They, I don't believe enough. I'm not believing enough. Because they're, they're focused on the things around them and they don't see things around them changing dramatically and so there's something wrong with them. So they try harder to believe. You might even ask for a show of hands. Doubts about a person's salvation, doubts about one's salvation are common in the life of many Christians in spite of what the Bible says, in spite of what God has told us. I want to show you a verse that has that has just been a, a tremendous verse and and, and 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 marked me in so many marvelous ways, and uh, it's just it's just one of those verses you just you know as you're reading through the Bible you just kind of go oh I never saw that before. It's in the it's in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter thirty-two, verse seventeen. Notice what Isaiah says. <clears throat> the fruit of righteousness will be what? Peace. The effect of righteousness. Now, please notice this. The effect of righteousness will be quietness or peace. You can also translate that peace. And what? Confidence forever. Do you see that? Now, what's Isaiah saying? What is the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet Isaiah? What is he saying? He's saying very simply where God grants righteousness. Has God granted righteousness? Very clearly, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, a righteousness from God has been made known. We have the righteousness of Christ, do we not? He who knew no sin was made to be sin that we might become the what? Righteousness of God. So where God grants righteousness, Isaiah tells us that with it comes peace and confidence. With it comes peace confidence. In fact, the New Testament speaks of this confidence in wonderful terms. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, listen to the Apostle Paul speak of this very same confidence. He says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and be united in love, so that they may have, now notice what he says, the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ." Full riches of complete understanding. Now, if you were to go to the Greek New Testament and you, and you, you translate that phrase or you find out what's the Greek word that, that is the NIV translates, full riches of complete understanding, the literal translation of that Greek term is full assurance. My goal is that they have what? Full assurance. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Again, Paul. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with what? Deep conviction. Do you see that? Now, again, the NIV translates the same word that was back in Colossians, same phrase, same exact word. The NIV translates a deep conviction. But it's much assurance. That's the literal words. Literal translation. Much assurance. The gospel came with much assurance. When God grants righteousness, he also with it grants what? Confidence, assurance. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Same thing. The writer to the Hebrews. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. Again, the same, same Greek word is used which is literally translated full assurance, that you have what? Full assurance. Do not doubt. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 22. The writer of Hebrews talks about that is drawn near to God with a sincere heart in what? Full assurance of faith. Same Greek word is used in that passage as those previous three passages. Now, what am I saying? What, 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 are, we, what are we talking about here? What's the issue for us? God wants and God does grant us righteousness. And when he grants us righteousness, with that righteousness, as Isaiah says, and as the New Testament writer says, he grants it with assurance. And though assurance is associated with our hope in Christ, though it is associated with salvation, though it is associated with our faith in Christ and righteousness, though it is given to us by God, nonetheless, there are many Christians who lack it. And we can, we can hammer on this point and hammer on this point and hammer on this point, but there are still Christians who are going to walk away and still lack assurance. And we're going to talk about why. We're going to talk about the reasons why. And, most, and these reasons are not always very obvious and apparent. But before we can do that, and before we can actually get in to these verses, 5 through 11, and these verses, by the way, are the solution to those who lack assurance. When you meditate on those verses, if you, if you have doubts in your mind about where you are, and you're standing with God and standing with Christ, and you have a, a doubt in terms of your, your assurance of salvation, you meditate on those verses. Those verses will hold a tremendous solution to your doubt. And as we shall unfold them, and this is why we're going to take our time, because they are so important in my mind that we understand them. But before we talk about the reasons also that people lack assurance, we're going to get into that this morning, there are a couple of other issues that I want to address. And these are difficult issues, and these are controversial issues. And um, so I'm going to speak controversially a little bit this morning. What's new, right? I want to stir some pots, There's some... There are some things up. So let me address these two issues. The first issue. Some people have assurance. Some people have assurance, but they have no right to it. They have no right to it. say, what do you mean by that? Well, they have a false assurance. They have a false sense of security. They have false peace. Would you say that that's dangerous? Would you say that that would be deceitful in their life? Deadly? Damning even? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are people who have assurance, but they have no right to have it. Because what? They are mistaken about their spiritual condition. And what's one of my jobs? To help them understand their spiritual condition. Remember the context of of chapter 1, first 11 verses, the context is salvation, isn't it? Know your salvation. Know your salvation. If you're going to take your stand against false teaching, if you're going to know the truth, you must know the truth about your salvation. Where it comes from. What it's made up of. How saved am I? How does it last? Does it last? Can I depend on it? Is it stable? All those questions. But there are some people who have assurance We have no basis for it. The old Negro spiritual lyric put it this way, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. That's true. That's true. What insight? Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. There are some people who have a feeling that all is well between God and them, and it ain't well between God and them. You can be assured that false prophets, false teachers, false religionists would like nothing more than to give people the feeling that they're secure. And they do. And you can be assured, so would Satan and his emissaries. The whole point is to what? Deceive people, to fake people out. Where you have the real, you have the counterfeit. And where there's the counterfeit, there are counterfeit teachers, there are false teachers. Again, this is part of Peter's uh, concern here is that these first century Christians are not taken in by false teachers and false teaching. They would love nothing better than to give people a false sense of security. Oh, no, no, everything's okay. You're all right. You're all right. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't question it. Don't question it. And if such people who have a false confidence, confidence, a false assurance, who are not saved but think they are, if they are to be saved and if that false assurance is to be taken from them, then they have to be forced to, to, to look at two things. And the two things are very simply this. The truth about salvation. And there's much confusion in the church about salvation. They must be forced to look at the truth of salvation. And secondly, they must be forced to look at the truth of their own spiritual condition. Sometimes, and, and I, you you, know, you got to know this, there are people who just look at you and you know that they don't know and you want to shake them and say, wake up. Am I the only one? You, you know what I'm talking about, right? So they've got to be made to see the truth about salvation and the truth about their own spiritual condition. That's why Jesus warns people. We pointed this verse out, this passage out last week in Matthew chapter 7, the very last verses of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 21 through 23. Jesus warns people. He warns them about presuming a relationship where there never was one. We're talking about people's eternal destiny hanging in the balance. Is that an important issue? And so Jesus warns people, don't presume on a relationship. Don't you think that everything is well. Don't assume. Because it may not be. This is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, says, in effect, and we'll do this this morning, When you come to the Lord's table, he says, examine yourself. We don't come in a frivolous manner. We don't come in a, and to use his words, an unworthy manner. We don't come in a manner that doesn't understand and that doesn't appreciate and value that which Christ has done. And we take our life and bring that to Christ. And we look at our life. And though we may not measure up, we know that His grace is great to us and we come very humbly and receive again the hope of His grace. Am I making sense? In fact, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He says, Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Indeed, he says, Test yourselves. Don't presume. Don't just kind of float along. Uh, This is something that all of us do, should do regularly. Test yourself. Test yourself. We say, shouldn't I be sure? Yes. But he says, even in the face of that, what? Test yourself. We are weak. We are fallible, aren't we? And there are seasons when all of us have some, some doubt. Let me suggest you doubt can be redemptive. You go back and you sit and you think through, you say, Oh, yes, okay, that's yes, nice. I believe that. Okay, 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 I'm committed there. Okay, okay. I'm back in the race. But sometimes we can what? Disqualify ourselves, can't we? There are people who have assurance, but they have no right to it. You say, Well, how do they get that false assurance? How do they arrive at that place? Well, somebody gave them some information about salvation that wasn't true and they believed it. They believed it. And because they believe what they think is true, they feel secure. They seem secure. And then there are, there are other people who, again, as we said earlier, who misjudge their spiritual condition. They misjudge their spiritual condition. They know the truth And they think they really have believed the truth, but they haven't. They haven't. In fact, much of our modern evangelism in the church today contributes to this false hope by using uh, a technique of, of logic. My son's been studying philosophy in college, and so we've been having conversations about philosophy and logic and reason. And all those kinds of things, there, your mind goes. uh, uh." And so we were talking about this just uh, this past week. In fact, I put it in your notes for you a technique called syllogistic assurance. Syllogistic assurance. Isn't that a great word? Syllogistic. Don't you just like that word? Syllogistic. I like that word. I don't want to lose you on that term. A syllogism simply is a form of logic. Syllogism is simply a form of logic. It has a major premise, has a minor premise that leads to a conclusion. When you look it up in the dictionary, as I did, because I didn't want to seem like an idiot to my son, I snuck off and looked it up. I found an example of a syllogism. Webster says, every virtue is laudable or praiseworthy. That's a major premise. Every virtue is laudable. The minor premise, kindness is a virtue. So then what's the conclusion? Kindness is laudable. That's your conclusion. So you have a major premise, a minor premise, and then you have your conclusion. That's a uh, syllogism. But again, much of our modern evangelism, if you think with me, if you follow my my logic here, much of our modern evangelism has been guilty of giving people syllogistic assurance. And for a long time. Let me show you how this works. If you go to the Gospel of John in chapter 1, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, it's a good starting place to tie in to this, this thought. Look at the verse. Yet to all who received him, now listen to the words, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So you say to someone, did you receive him? Yes. Okay? Major premise. Major premise. Anyone who receives him becomes his child. That's the major premise based on that verse. Did you do that? Yes. Minor premise, you just did that. Major premise, anyone who receives him becomes his child. Minor premise, you just did that. Conclusion, you're his child. Does that sound logical? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. You say, what's the problem? Here's the problem. The problem lies with the minor premise. You say, what's the problem with the minor premise? You don't know if they just did that. Well, they just said they did that. That's different. You just don't know if they did it. How many times do people say things and they don't really mean them? They may think they mean them. Have you ever done that? You ever said something you didn't mean? Said you did something? Said you believed something you really didn't believe? You weren't too sure of? Talking to somebody, you go, oh, yeah, I understand, Uh uh-huh. And you're clueless. That's akin to what I'm talking about. Does that make sense? See, you don't know if they actually did it. They said they did it, but you don't know. The Puritans had a saying, tested, then trusted. Tested, then trusted you see you don't know if they did that until they're what tested In John chapter four was it John cha- no John chapter nine I'm sorry John chapter nine it was it John chapter nine John chapter eight the man born blind who knows John nine that's what I thought John nine the 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 man born blind was was his profession tested? Remember the passage? Oh, big time tested. Even his parents said, we don't know. He's not ours. He's old enough. And he stood firm. He says, all I know, I was blind, but now I see. And he was really put under some scrutiny, wasn't he? Matthew chapter 13 talks about the, the parable of the four soils and where the seed was sown. There's testing there, isn't there? Testing. See, this is appeal. This is an appeal to a logical syllogism. If you know the facts of the gospel, and minor premise, you believe the facts of the gospel, therefore you're a Christian. This is a major component of our contemporary evangelism in the church today. We're just making assumptions. We're just making assumptions, and we're not holding people's feet to the fire. We're not allowing and waiting and instructing them. Your profession now is going to be tested. Make sure. Some people have assurance when they shouldn't have it because someone gives them a false doctrine, a false teaching, a false gospel. They believed it, and then they believe that they're saved, and in fact, they may not be. Is that something for us to be concerned about? Yes. Yes. The second issue that I want to talk about, and this is a little bit more controversial, a little bit more difficult for some, but nonetheless, I must address it. It's kind of like the elephant that's in the room that no one wants to acknowledge. You know what I'm talking about? All right. Some people, some people think no one has a right to assurance, not even a true Christian. Some people think no one has a right to it. In fact, some people think it's presumption to imagine that you are secure. You say, why is that? It's presumption to be assured of your security in Christ. They say it will lead to indifference. It will lead to carelessness. It will lead to sin. It will lead to unholiness. This is a view which basically says, if I thought that I was secure forever, then I could go out and do anything I wanted. Now, Paul clearly teaches against that in Romans chapter 6. If you study Romans chapter 6, it's very clear. There's a great concern that the teaching of grace in its truest form is license. Grace is not the same as license. But I promise you, when you understand grace, when you truly understand grace, you will find yourselves at times sorely tempted to abuse it. But you will not because you cannot. You say, how come? How come I can't? Well, if you go back to Romans chapter 6, because you're a different person. Paul answers the legalists of his day. The argument against his preaching of grace was that where, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And the legalists of his day attacks him. And they say, well, Paul, if what you're saying is we should sin more to get more of God's grace. And Paul's response to that, his rhetorical response is what? No way. He says, how can we go on sinning? We died to sin. We're not the same people. It's impossible. You can't go on living your life like you used to. Once you become a true Christian, born again, you cannot, you cannot live your life like you used to live it. You may try, you may try, but I promise you, it is not going to be the same. It's it's impossible. I mean, I know people in our church. I've watched I've watched them walk away. I watched them walk away. I watched them get back into sin and profligate lifestyles and behavior. And I know that I know that I know they'll be back, and guess what? They come back. And they come back and they're just just they're broken. Why? Because they couldn't do what they used to do, because they're not the same person anymore. If anybody be in Christ, what Paul says they are, what a new creation, old things have passed away, new has come. This is God at work making us righteous, making us new, beloved. And he means for us to know that and to be confident of that, have some significant measure of assurance. People tell us, you can't possibly let anybody think that their salvation is secure. You can't possibly let anybody think that because they'll abuse the privileges. Because after all, they can't lose their salvation, so why not live any way you want? Can't. That's not only the view of, of many in the Protestant church, in the Christian church. People who are truly Christians, that's only the view of some people in the Christian church. That's the Roman Catholic view. And I want to identify for you, uh, that this is something that the, that the Catholic Church has taught for years and years and years. How many know what the Council of Trent was all about? A handful of you. How many have heard of the Reformation?
1: <laughs>
0: the Reformation came about because of the move of God to reform the church. Use certain people in the church to reform the church. And the Council of Trent was in reaction largely to the Reformation. And the decrees of the Council of Trent, some of them go like this. Let me I want to quote these to you to give you a, a sense of why some people feel it's it's impossible that you should have any, any assurance of your salvation. And this is this is also carried over in some segments of the Protestant Church. Quote No one can know with a certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. Categorical statement. And though the Council of Trent was in the 16th century, the teachings still hold today. They're doctrines today. No one, moreover, so long as he is in this mortal life, ought so far to presume as regards the secret mystery of divine predestination as to determine for certain that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinates. You can't know. For except by special revelation, it cannot be known whom God hath chosen unto himself. If anyone saith that a man who is born again and justified is bound of faith to believe that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinates, let him be anathema. What's the ch- what's, what are they saying? They're saying very simply this. Curse those people who feel secure. That's what that statement says. Curse those people who feel secure. In a Roman Catholic dictionary of theology, under the heading of certainty of salvation, I'm not bashing the Roman Catholics. I'm just just trying to help you understand and get some perspective. This is what's what's taught, and and this is what also is, is held in some segments of the Protestant church. The same theology. Here's out of a Catholic Dictionary of Theology. Quote, A concept of Protestant theology which signifies a belief in justification so firm that this belief is inconsistent with any doubt of of a man's ultimate salvation, such a certainty of salvation which Catholic theology describes as absolute was repudiated by the Council of Trent. Because whereas the Christian is absolutely, notice this please, This this is significant, Whereas the Christian is absolutely forbidden to doubt what God has done in Jesus Christ or to doubt his universal salvific will, this does not exclude all possible doubt of one's own eternal salvation. Now let me just tell you what they said. Let me tell you what they said. You can't doubt anything but your salvation. That's the only thing you can doubt is your salvation. That is an absolutely absurd statement. You are forbidden to doubt anything that Jesus Christ has done, anything that's included in God's salvific will, except your salvation. It's the only thing you can doubt. Is that marvelous? Think about that. The Roman Catholic Church, and indeed others outside the Roman Catholic Church, conceive of salvation as a joint effort by man and God. It's a joint effort, man and God, we're in this together, and as a blessing which can only be maintained through the doing of good works. It must, then, to the believer, you can never be absolutely sure, then, of your what? Salvation. Salvation. You can never be absolutely sure. For one's assurance of salvation is must be based on one's own what? Meritorious good deeds, acts, works, behavior, etc., etc., etc. If that's true, then the most that I or you can ever attain, the most that we could ever hope for, is some kind of speculative or conjectural sense of assurance. I can never be sure if it's based on God and me, because if my salvation depends upon God and me, beloved, I might mess up. What does that do to the thing, if I mess up? So where you have in Roman Catholic theology, man involved in salvation, and where you have in Arminian theology, man involved in salvation, you have have insecurity, not security. You have insecurity. Why? Because man can default. Man can mess up. If my my part is so important and I mess up, then what does that do? But where you have, in Reformed theology, where you have salvation, all the work of God. Now, that gives me peace. It's all the work of God. Then you have the attendant doctrine of security, which leads to assurance. The basic question is this. Note this. This is the basic question. This is what it all boils down to whether one is saved by grace alone, whether a person is saved by grace alone, or whether one's salvation depends in part on his or her meritorious good works. What's my salvation based on? Grace alone or in part on what I do. That's the issue. That's the bottom line issue. That's where it all boils down to. And beloved, if the latter is true, if it's dependent on God and me, if that's true, then no one can ever be sure of their salvation. You live with a constant sense of of insecurity. You can never, ever say for sure, I'm going to heaven. You can never say, if someone to say, if you were to die today, what would happen to you? You can never say, I'm going to heaven. Because why? You're imperfect. Did everybody not already sin today in one way or another? Yeah. Did we all fall short in some even infinitesimally small way? Yeah. He said, well, where's the, there there has to be a dividing line. I mean, there has to be some great sin. Oh, it's immortal sin, venial sin. (laughs) Again, being a Catholic, I can identify those things. But if, beloved, if the former is true, then you can be sure, you can be sure that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven. If it's all by the grace of God and not based on my own works. No, you may not always necessarily be in full possession of that assurance. You can have it, because it's based on fact. So, some would feel we can never be sure and leave it at that. Now, some people are comfortable with that. Some people are comfortable living and saying, well, well, I, I acknowledge you can never be sure because it's not all God, it's God and man. And, you see, but that's a good thing. Why is that a good thing? You see, because it helps me live a good life. Because if I have to, have to keep living a good life, then that makes me stay and saved. And then, you know, that, that, becomes, that becomes absolutely laborious. Christian life was not meant to be laborious. And there are a lot of people. you you just in your own life. How do you feel about yourself? How do you feel about your spirituality? How do you feel about your relationship with God when you know that you haven't been reading your Bible as you're supposed to? Or your prayer life isn't what it ought to be. Or you haven't been coming to church. Or you're not giving. Or you're not serving. Or you're not, you know, all the stuff that we do. The motivation is to do it because we have to do it. The motivation to do it is because we, we want to do it. This is the greatest privilege we have to participate in the grace of God that he shed all over us. Am I making sense? At least So those two points are very, very important for us. Very important for us, I believe, to understand. First of all, some people have assurance who have no right to it. And secondly, some people deny that anybody can have assurance. Now, let's go on and talk about this subject of assurance in a little bit more detail. What we want to achieve. Here's our goal. This is where we want to go. This is where we're going. This is what we want to achieve. We want to achieve exactly what Peter says in chapter uh, uh, verse 10. This is our goal. This is what, we, this is what he wants for us. Look again. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election what? Sure. He wants us to be sure. Now, if you give somebody a gift, if you bless somebody, if you pour out and they're not sure, you say, no, 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 trust me, be confident. This is, I've given you this. Don't you want them to be sure? Absolutely. That's all he's telling us. So when this series is through, when we're due through with these last verses up to verse 11, Peter wants us to be certain about God's calling and God's election. That's all he's telling us. He wants us to be certain about these things. He wants us, without a hint of doubt, without a hint of doubt, he wants us to be able to say, I am among the elect. He wants us to be able to say, I am chosen, I am called, I am eternally secure, and I enjoy my assurance. That's his goal, and that's where we're going. That's what we want to achieve. Now, let me ask you a basic question, because we have to talk about this other issue. We've set the stage, set the play a little bit. Now, this question, and we're going we're gonna to look at this, the balance of our time this morning and then next week. Why is it? Why is it that people lack assurance? Why do some Christians, now this is Christians, not non-believers. We can say non-believers lack assurance because they don't have it, because they're not saved. But Christians, why is it that some Christians lack assurance, even in the face of all that God says in his word about it? Why is it that they lack it? Let me give you one reason this morning, and then we'll look at the next ones next week. This is a very, very important reason. Because because those Christians may be under strong teaching, strong preaching that upholds a high standard of holiness and a high standard of God. You say, What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? (laughs) Someone can see where I'm going with this. Demanding preaching. Confrontive preaching, convicting preaching, preaching that holds up a high standard of holiness, the kind of preaching that forces people to see their sinfulness and forces them to acknowledge the holiness of God. That is not always a comfortable place to be. Would you agree? I had a, I had a, I had a person tell me that uh, they said, I said, I haven't seen your church. He said, well, he said, I, don't, I don't come to your church anymore. I said, how come? He said, because when I leave your church, I always feel bad. I said, what do you feel bad about? Myself. Good. I'm achieving my goal. I said, you just got to stick around long enough. You start feeling better. Preaching that calls, people, to a high standard of Christian living. People don't want to live to a high standard. Do we need to hold the bar high? Or do we need to lower the bar? No, we need to hold the bar high. We need to insist on righteousness. We need to insist on holiness. We need to call people to these things. But that environment may indeed lead some to a lack of assurance in their life. Now, is that a bad thing? No, not really. I don't think so. One writer puts it this way. I love this. So I included it. (laughs) And you can, when I say this statement, you'll appreciate why I said it. You can understand. The pulpit is rightly the creator of anxious hearts. The pulpit is rightly the creator of anxious hearts. That is one of its duties. For it must convict those who face or who have false assurance. It must convict those who have false assurance. It must confront sin. It must call for the highest and holiest standard. And by virtue of all those mandates, it may have then the effect of destabilizing some people and making them waver about the reality of their spiritual condition. They walk away going, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm a Christian. Because why? They compare themselves with the standard. And when they compare themselves with the standard, they say, I'm so woefully short of that standard, maybe I'm not even a Christian. Now, I have been on occasion accused of that kind of preaching. But as an object lesson, as, as just a – I have a little video clip that I want you to see about people sitting under strong, convicting preaching. We're going to visit the church of the quivering brethren.
1: I'm going to call your
0: attention to the screen.
1: How are the church of the Quivering Brethren. I am all burning hell. And someone's got to tell them so. May I come with you? think you'll escape from the fires of hell if you come along with me and bow down and quiver. That's too late, don't they? Be? You'll burn with the rest. Well, I should like to see it, even so. Why are they called Quivering Brethren? Why? Because they quiver. And they prepare for torment. Do you prepare your sermons beforehand, or does it just come? Word is never prepared. It falls on my mind like manna from heaven. Really? How interesting. Then you have no idea what you're going to say before you get there. Aye, I, I always know it'll be somewhat about burning. And does anyone else preach, or are you the only one? Only me but a check bottom she tried once ways to get up and preach but she couldn't. The Lord weren't in her. Shawling worms, are ye here again then? <coughs> Have ye come like Ninces, son of Rhea born secretly out of your doomed houses to hear what's coming to ye? <coughs> Have ye come, old and young, sick and well, matrons and virgins? If there be any emergence amongst you, which is not like here, the world being in the wicked state that it is, oh, have you come to hear me tell you of the great crimson-licking flames of hellfire? I oh, <laughs> you come dozens of you, like rats to the granary, like field mice when there's harvest home, and what? Good for it, do you? Oh. You're all down! Oh. simple boys stretched out on red-hot red-eyes in the nethermost fiery pit of hell, and those demons mocking you while their waves cool in jellies in front of you. You know what it's like when you burn your heart, taking a change out of the oven, or lighting one of them godless cigarettes, and it stings with a fearful pain, oi. And you wrong to clap a bit of butter on it to take the pain away. Aye. Well, I tell you, there'll be no butter in hell. And your body will be burning and singing with that terrible pain. And your tongue will be sticking out of your mouth. And your past lips will be crying out for Now. <laughs> Now,
0: question, do you think that any of those people may have a a lack of confidence in their salvation? (laughs) Demanding preaching, convicting preaching, strong preaching that sets a high and holy standard for the saved brings along, beloved, a strong conviction of sin, which can produce doubt which can produce doubt, particularly in a sinning Christian. Would you agree? Particularly in a sinning Christian. Now, having said that, let me say this. This rarely happens today. This rarely happens today. Why? Because there's rarely any convicting preaching. There's rarely any convicting preaching. Churches across our country are filled filled with self-absorbed, self-satisfied, Complacent people who don't feel particularly insecure about anything in their life because nothing in their life is ever confronted. It rarely happens because preaching today is more concerned about making people feel good. I call it feel-good preaching. Warm fuzzies. Rub tummies. Don't upset anybody. Don't challenge anybody. We're all concerned. We live in a therapeutic culture. We live in a politically correct society. Don't step on anybody's toes. Don't say anything difficult. Now, if the truth be known, don't we all want to be liked? And so because we want to be liked, we say things that won't offend anybody because we want to be liked. There's are a preacher or pastor around that doesn't want their congregation to like them, love them. I want you to like me. I want you to love me. I want you to appreciate me. But I'm not going to do it. <laughs> today, today. But I'm still going to tell you what I believe. I think it's that important. I'm going to risk you not liking me and not loving me because I'm going to tell you what I believe. And I'm going to tell you what I believe I think you need to hear. Beloved, it rarely happens Preaching today is not convicting. In the majority of environments, it is not strong, nor does it necessarily set a particularly high standard. We have lowered the bar in the church. There's a whole movement in the Christian church today, the evangelical church, which talks about being seeker-sensitive. And so we lower the bar. We want to make it easy for people, easy for people. And that permeates the entire culture. So we're afraid to ask the difficult questions. We're afraid to confront sin. We're afraid to hold people's feet to the fire. Because we want to have them feel good. We don't want to offend anybody. Most of the time where the passages or or messages on assurance are given, they are preached to make people feel assured. You say, well, that makes sense. Shouldn't we want to make people feel assured? Most of the time we want to give people some psychological assurance so they'll feel comfortable about themselves and they will never ever then question their spiritual condition. The whole idea, when you lead somebody to Christ, think about this now. The whole idea, when you lead somebody to Christ, the first responsibility you have, the first responsibility you have after they have said the prayer is to make sure that you make, make them feel assured. You want them to feel good. So you say to them, you say to them, in effect, from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, If you believe, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you may know that you have eternal life. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the major premise. It says that. Minor premise says you believed. Conclusion? What? What's the conclusion? You're saved. You have eternal life. Now, feel secure. Now, feel assured. Don't worry about anything. Beloved, about the only time that we talk about assurance is to make people assured. Not to make them question. Not to make them think whether their assurance is a false one. That's how we should be preaching assurance. To make them think. To make them question. In fact, I suppose, because of that, fewer fewer people today in the church struggle with assurance because the teaching lacks a strong call to holiness and the preachers feel it's their duty to make people feel good but on the other hand convicting preaching can create doubt and that's not a bad thing because doubt can be redemptive make you think make you evaluate make you come to grips with the condition of your life and what the Bible says about what you believe and have you believed it I want to read you a letter it was not written to me, it was written to another pastor from a member of his church and this pastor is noted for his strong and convicting preaching. Dear pastor, I've been attending this church for some time now. As a result of a growing conviction in my heart, a result of your preaching, And seeming to be powerless against the temptations which arise in my heart and constantly succumbing to them in talks with pastors and godly men about my growing doubts has led me to believe I'm not saved. How sad it is, pastor, for me to not be able to enter in because of the sin which clings to me and from which I long to be free. How bizarre For one who teaches in a Bible study with heartfelt conviction, a trainer in discipleship and evangelism, so many times I have determined in my heart to repent, to shake loose my want to sin, to forsake all for Jesus, only to find myself doing the sin I don't want to do and not doing the good I want to do. After my fiancé and I broke up. I memorized Ephesians as part of an all-out effort against sin, only to find myself weaker and more painfully aware of my sinfulness, more prone to sin than ever before, grabbing cheap thrills to push back the pain of lost love. Mostly in the heart, Pastor. And that's where it counts. I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm like a soldier without my armor, running across a battlefield, getting shot up by fiery darts from the enemy. I couldn't leave the church if I wanted to. I love the people. I'm enthralled by the gospel of a beautiful Messiah. I'm a pile of manure on the white marble floor of Christ a mongrel dog that snuck in the back door of the king's banquet to lick the crumbs off the floor. And by being close to Christians who are rich in the blessings of Christ, I get some of the overflow. And I ask you to pray for me as you think best. Demanding preaching creates doubt. You say, was he saved in the first place? Well, if you follow the letter and you hear the sentiment in the heart of the letter, this phrase jumped out to me. So many times I have determined in my heart to repent, to shake loose my want to sin, to forsake all for Jesus, not only to find myself doing the sin I don't want to do and not doing the good I want to do. Now, that sounded to me more like a Christian out of Romans 7 than an unbeliever. If I reflected back in my own life, uh, when I was a full-on sinner, uh, in the full sense of that word, I wasn't concerned about that. I love my sin. Only when I became convicted of it. Only when I became a believer. And you know what? The truth is, you, you start memorizing Scripture like he did in an all-out effort to battle sin, you only become more acutely aware of it in you. So is that a fruitless effort? No, it's a very valuable effort. Very valuable effort. Demanding preaching can produce doubt. It can produce doubt, particularly in the sinning Christian, no question, but that's not a bad thing because that doubt can then be redemptive. So, the pulpit, if it has the luxury of being the creator of anxiety, the creator of anxious hearts, isn't that a great delight? We also have the great joy and privilege of bringing confidence and assurance. J.I. Packer said it this way. The preaching of the Word is the supreme means of grace. Listen to that. The preaching of the Word is the supreme means of grace. That's what we're here for. We're preach the Word. Paul told Timothy, preach the Word. Preach the Word. The supreme means of grace. And, beloved, I hope that as we study through this series on assurance, that it will indeed be a supreme means of grace to you also. Now, there's a second reason people lack assurance, and we'll explore that next week. Shall we pray? Lord, again, we are thankful for your goodness to us, thankful for your word, thankful for your, your faithful servant, Peter, who writes these things to us. Lord, I pray that as we study this passage over these next weeks, that indeed it will be a source of great, great comfort, encouragement, and strength to our life. Thank you, God, for your grace that saves us. As we prepare now, O Lord, to come to your table to remember Jesus, indeed to examine ourselves, examine where we are and who we are, what we are. Lord, that we take shelter in your grace. Lord, if those of us be weak, admitting to a sin that we come under the covering of your grace and your blood. Thank you, Lord, that though our sin be great, your grace is greater. Thank you that you are our safe harbor, our safe haven, that we can come to you, and you will no wise cast us out. Speak to our hearts this morning, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're a Christian and you're visiting with us, we invite you to take communion. And the protocol is very, very simple. The servers will pass the trays down through the rows and the matzah will come first, the juice second. Take one each of the elements, hold on to them. We want to wait till everybody is served. I'll come back. We'll all take communion together. In the intervening moments, as the congregation is being served, use that time to, as Paul says, examine yourselves. I'll be back in a few minutes. Bible says, "Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift." What is that indescribable gift? It's Jesus, the gift of salvation, eternal life. We can't describe it, but we thank Him for it. We thank Him for the confidence of it. God, who gave His one and only Son, His unique Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God means for us to know that. He means for us to have confidence in what He has given, what He's provided. He doesn't want us to be in doubt. Doubt only trips us up. Doubt keeps us insecure. Doubt keeps us falling. But when you're sure and you're confident of His love, His grace, His power in your life, He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And when you're confident of these things, you move forward in that power. You move forward in that confidence, not in your own strength, but rather in the strength of the Lord in you. You realize, I can do everything God's called me to do. I can be everything that God's called me to be because he gives me the strength to do it. All the promises of God are ours. when you're confident, when you're sure. And that's what He means for us do. Jesus said, it gives your Father great pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants us to enjoy. He wants us to know the truth. He says, when you know the truth, the truth sets you free. So thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Amen? The bread and the cup Remind us again, we can't see Jesus. We can't touch him physically. Paul says that we come to this table and we remember him. We celebrate his death until he comes again. When we will see him face to face. Until that time we look at things. Reminds us of his body, his blood. Tremendous import in these two simple, humble elements. He took our sins upon Himself and His own body. He poured out His blood, died in our place on that cross, that our sins may be fully, finally forgiven. All of them. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We can call God our Father, our Abba Father it doesn't end it just goes on and on and on. Isn't that marvelous thanks be to God for his indescribable gift if you love the Lord if you're committed to the Lord you've examined your own heart put off unforgiveness and bitterness and sin repenting of it again this morning reaffirming your commitment to Christ and to follow him all the days of your life Jesus is your savior and your lord. He said this is my body taken you. Lord, thank you that our sins are forgiven. You poured out your perfect blood in a perfect sacrifice to make perfect payment. For all of our sins. Thank you for that confidence. Thank you for that peace. And thank you for the righteousness you give us as a free gift. We love you, Lord. We lift our cups. We remember you. We look forward to your coming again to Jesus. Amen. How many would say, how many would say, it is well with my soul. Let's stand and let's sing that song. Let's make that declaration together.